Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Welcome, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Institute of World Politics. I'm Patricia Schuker, alumni of IWP and founder of the Global Impact Discussion Series. For those of you who are new, IWP is the Graduate School of National Security and International Affairs. We have five master's programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. If you are interested in learning more about us, uh, please feel free to speak to one uh, of our staff at the conclusion of this event. Thank you for joining us this afternoon, and we are honored to have Mr. Christopher Andrew at IWP for a great discussion. Uh, thank you to IWP and to Yale University Press for helping to organize this event. Before we start, um, I wanted to give a, a plug to the Global Impact Discussion Series, as we are actually celebrating our two years anniversary today. Um, the Global Impact Discussion Series was designed to promote discussions between the, gov the government, private sector, and academia. A uh, few logistics before we start. Uh, Mr. Andrew will be available for book signing after the event. Uh, we will also leave 20 minutes, 20 minutes for Q&A at the end of, of, this pre of his presentation. Um, we will be on the record uh, for uh, Professor Andrew's presentation and uh, for Q&A and the discussion with one of our faculty will be off the record. So I appreciate if you turn off, um, if you're filming, to turn it off. Allow me to introduce uh, Professor John Sano, uh, former Deputy Director of the CIA Clandestine Service. Thank you. Good afternoon, and uh, thank you for coming. Uh, since I worked in the government, I'll speak in a monotone. <laughs> uh, if I were to go through the incredible resume uh, of Professor Andrew, it would take up literally the bulk of our, our afternoon, so I'll keep it purposely short. Uh, professor Andrew is Emeritus Professor of Modern and Contemporary History and former Chair of the Faculty of History at Cambridge University. For those of you who don't know, that's in England. He is also Chair of the British Intelligence Study Group, the founding co-editor of Intelligence and National Security. He's also a former visiting professor at Harvard University, the University of Toronto, and the Australian National University. In addition, he is a regular presenter on BBC Radio and TV, uh, particularly on documentaries involving intelligence. His most recent book, prior to the one we are discussing today, was Defend the Realm, the Authorized History of MI5, he was, which was uh, a major international hit. Among his 15 previous books include The Sword and the Shield, The World Was Going Our Way, and other pathbreaking studies on the use and occasionally the abuse of intelligence in modern history. His current book, The Secret World, The History of Intelligence, is the first global history of espionage ever written. So you're in for a particular treat this afternoon. So without further ado, I give you a Well, thank you for your welcome. Only 3,500 years to um, get through, but I think I'm probably a better way to start. Um, so this is, um, uh, the, I think, the least um, remembered uh, centenary of this year. Plenty good reasons for not remembering it um, uh, too much. But uh, actually, Russian intelligence, despite the different regimes which have been nominally in control of it, is the only major intelligence service that hasn't changed its headquarters uh, for um, uh, 100 years. So, so there we are. And... Uh, what has been happening outside it this year um, 
is, I think, an extremely good sign. The, the regime doesn't want this to continue because this is the annual celebration of the victims of Stalin's and not simply Stalin's terror. So what you can just about see on the, the left uh, with all the candles uh, in front of it is a large block of granite which was not founded by Stalin. It was founded by Lenin. Um, that's um, uh, where the Gulag uh, begins in this really rather beautiful place which I've been fortunate to go to, Solovetsky uh, Island on the, uh, uh, the, White, um, uh, the White Sea. Now, what, what has happened since? I mean, it's curious. Eh? Putin is a deeply unwholesome uh, uh, individual, and how anybody could uh, arrive at an opposite conclusion is very difficult for me to understand. And everybody has, I hope we may discuss that, uh, that afterwards. But the, the, the different compartments to uh, Putin's uh, brain are so difficult for us to, to understand. They're often not mentioned at all. He is a baptized Christian. He is a devout member of the Orthodox Church, which does not mean that he's a good person. It just means uh, what I've uh, uh, said. And he likes photographs uh, uh, taken uh, like uh, that. And as you see, he's smiling as it's, uh, it's taken. Furthermore, uh, I've never seen this friendship in any of the American media. The KGB, now the FSB, well, Foreign Intelligence, the SVR, has its own church. The CIA has never had its own church. It never will have its own church. No, no British intelligence agency will ever have its own church. But you can go there. It's just off uh, Red Square on um, uh, Sunday mornings. And you, you'll find the icons inside of St. George the Dragon Slayer, who happens to be the patron saint of um, the FSB. The icons were presented actually by... Well, not by Putin, but by Patricia, which is perhaps the, uh, uh, the same thing. Now, again, just imagine a picture like that of Gina Haspel um, with the President um, of uh, the, the United States at Westminster, um, at start again, at, uh, at Washington uh, Cathedral. Just not possible. So the, the convolutions in the the, the pattern of relationships uh, which uh, link the regime to the church and to the, uh, the KGB are uh, really nothing like those that many people in the West spend uh, time uh, studying. And here, here's a book that's actually influenced me. It's not a good book, but it still um, uh, influenced me. Um, you know, the, 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 the book that has kind of been mentioned already uh, actually goes right back to the beginning. And if I could just uh, quote the, um, uh, at the beginning, the first person of any significance in world history to emphasize the need for good intelligence was, was God. That's not a disrespectful comment, but it accurately summarizes his conversations with Moses, who didn't really get it. Uh, well, <laughs> the, 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 my history of American intelligence, how presidents have used intelligence reasonably, that only goes back to Washington, because he was the first uh, president. But it was reading this book, or some of it, that made me realize how absurd I'd been in uh, starting so late by other histories of intelligence. Uh, this is uh, uh, edited um, by Yevgeny Primakov. And uh, Primakov was head, actually, Russian equivalent, pretty much, of this, uh, this institute, as well as being head for five years of the Russian <coughs> Foreign Intelligence Service after the end of the, the old regime. Now, it goes back to Ivan the Terrible. 
And I really don't think that there is any way of understanding uh, contemporary or 20th century uh, Russian intelligence without going back um, that far. Uh, so there he is. Um, and Stalin commissioned um, one of the greatest films in Russian history, and I think that's a fair description of the, the uh, two uh, parts of Ivan the Terrible, in order to justify himself in the 20th century by showing or trying to show that Ivan the Terrible's terror was necessary to um, the survival of Russia. He sought to justify his own uh, a number of centuries uh, later. So, uh, uh, again, Stalin is so much written about that it tends to be forgotten how much of the source material is simply ignored because it just doesn't somehow fit with our understanding of Stalin. So there he was. Uh, at that age, probably the best-looking revolutionary in the, uh, in the world. Uh, and in Georgia, but what he began to generate was a huge Okrana fire. Now, the, the, the many, the many uh, uh, books on Stalin virtually don't mention it. Uh, so this is how it begins. The Okrana Tsarist Intelligence Service has a huge file on, um, on Stalin, and it's 125 volumes long. And as soon as, uh, immediately after the revolution, Stalin took it into his own possession. There's never been, to my knowledge, and there may be somebody not to my knowledge, who spent as much of his subsequent life poring over his, uh, his, own, his own file. So they, virtually every page has notes, notations, and then you see where he really stops and just gets stuck. Um, oh no, I'll come up to that moment. And well, one of the things which undoubtedly strengthened his generally paranoid attitude towards the world was to see how much his private life would follow. So um, this he sends to a friend's fiancée in 1912. I think there's no doubt that his, his first match uh, was a love match and that no match thereafter had anything to do with love. So he's, uh, he's promising her a hot kiss because he says those are the only kind of kisses uh, worth uh, giving. And 34-year-old Stalin sending to somebody else's 16-year-old fiancé a photograph which uh, actually would not have been allowed to be sent uh, through the mail either in the United States um, or in Britain. So the file is full of things like this which really very very different from any biography I've, I've, uh, I've ever read. And this is one uh, example of uh, uh, another thing in his file which uh, really affected him. So there's Roman Malinowski, um, who was one of the very, very few Bolsheviks who was actually of working class uh, origin. In fact, this is also a criminal made him that much more credible so far as Lenin is concerned. In 1912, he's head of the Bolshevik Party, Bolshevik fraction in the Duma. He's Lenin, who's a bit slow on the uptake in all kinds of ways, asked him to investigate Tsarist uh, secret police penetration of uh, the Bolsheviks. And six months later, uh, he comes back and says, um, I'm afraid we've concluded that there must be uh, a, an Akrana agent very close to the leadership of the Bolshevik Party. Absolutely right. The only thing he fails to mention is that it was him. <laughs> <laughs> but, but when Stalin discovered that, of course, that, that did not increase his by now non-existent trustfulness. Now, the, the linkages um, between the Tsarist uh, period and not really the Soviet period, the post-Soviet period, but really remarkable. So, uh, and 
think, I can't think of the book that mentions, but anyway, the evidence is in my book, I don't regard it as controversial, that Russia under Tsar Nicholas II was actually the leader in Sikint, the intelligence derived from the interception and its necessary the decryption of uh, communications. And a link with, uh, between that period and the, uh, the Stalin era, and actually a little beyond the Stalin period, what was this easiest target? Easy. The United States. Why? Because there was no such thing as embassy security. Except, uh, so there we are, the George Bush, who was ambassador at St. Petersburg, capital of Poland, in 1905. I have discovered beyond a doubt that the Russian government has in their possession uh, our entire cable code. Well, the uh, State Department thought about this and took a then major decision. It would do nothing. Mm. Uh, and what one finds in Stalin's files, again, the, the books on Stalin don't mention that he was, no book on Churchill could mention that he was anything other than fabulously interested in Sigurd. I don't know of any book, although there is to be one by a former student of mine, that he was fabulously interested in Sigurd as well. And uh, uh, just like Nicholas II, he ticked off from uh, the ones he could be particularly interested in. in his case, he hadn't put in his own private file. So eventually, uh, when the, the United States, there's a period when the US Embassy was completely secure between 1980, again, uh, uh, 1918 and 1932, but that was only because the United States did not have an embassy in uh, Russia during that period. So its first one during the Soviet era is uh, 1933, and then the ambassador in 1936 discovers that it's bugged. And he, he writes the State Department to say, oh, really, really pleased to discover we're bugged, because it means they know what we're early on about and that we're really their friends. If the Soviets had a dictaphone, so much the better, the sooner they would find that we were friends, not um, our enemies. And uh, you, you can see by just looking at his expression that he is a diplomat with learning difficulties. <laughs> <laughs> the, the FBI will not call him the Swedish of the Embassy until 1944, and the, uh, read the official records on this. And on day one, they discovered 120 uh, mm. hidden uh, microphones. Now, uh, of course, um, uh, what is going on so far as Britain is concerned? Well, uh, the fifth man, who was of the, the Philby and Friends uh, Ring of Five, is, tends to get less published than the others. That's because it was less important, because he was the last one to, uh, to be discovered. So there he is, John Cancross, uh, and he is the only Soviet agent to penetrate um, uh, Bletchley Park. And I don't think there's any other area of uh, politics or life in, in general uh, uh, in which such absurd films can be um, uh, produced. You know, if you want to, films about presidents may make mistakes. But, I think a number of people here will have seen the imitation game, which includes Ken Cross and the greatest of all British codebreakers, Alan Turing. And what goes on is that Ken Cross blackmails Turing by saying, look, I won't tell them you're gay if you don't tell me I'm not a Soviet spy, ever that I'm a Soviet spy. It is that stupid. But all the time, they could have done a really, really interesting film. Because Ken Cross, um, had um, a really very advanced interest in polygamy. Um, and indeed, he, he wrote, he's the only um, uh, academic to have written a history of, uh, of polygamy, which got a sensationally good review. Look, I'm very pleased with the reviews I've been getting. There's nothing in the same class as, uh, as, uh, as this one. So the review I'm about to show you 
is by Graham Graving the writer, also uh, in uh, British Intelligence, and also ended up running the BBC. And here is the review, which I deeply think is. Here at last is a book that will strongly appeal to all the Instead of making that silly film, they could have done a really interesting one about pedigree, but there we are. And uh, now on to Putin. Well, one of the many other things that people don't uh, grasp sufficiently about Putin uh, is that he's really, really, really uh, interested in the files of uh, Russian foreign intelligence. Many glorious pages, bright examples of true heroism and courage in this the KGB. So here's just one example. And from time to time, when he produces it, he's having a joke at our expense. And this is a joke that he had at our expense. I don't think anybody noticed it at the time. So uh, he suddenly announces uh, that uh, uh, George, uh, George Coble, who was an atom spy who had uh, GRU one, who had not really been uh, identified in the, uh, in the West, he announces um, a few months after his death that he's making him posthumously hero of uh, Russia. Now, what, what was his role? I mean, we knew and had long known uh, that um, the construction of the world's first atomic bomb, the American one, had been, uh, it, all the details had been uh, obtained, and that the first Russian one, uh, exploded four years later in the Kazakhstan test site, had been an exact copy. But what we failed to take into account was that the atom spies that we knew about had not provided uh, intelligence on the initiator. I don't know how to work on a <coughs> initiator, but basically you're not going to get your bomb to go off unless you've got one. Uh, and this is uh, what he he provided. So there he is. Um, Putin is more or less teetotal, but he's raising a champagne uh, toast to Koval as hero of Russia. And uh, the secret that he provided was the use of Palladium 210 as the uh, initiator. But the way that he was having uh, one of his own wholesome jokes at our, offense, at our expense was just a few months later, Palladium 210 had been used to assassinate the defector in London. The defector was Alexander Litvinenko, and just as more recently in Salisbury, they would have known each other, they spilled the stuff all over the place. Um, and uh, those are some of the places that uh, uh, they spilled it. And uh, you can, that's the man who was the, uh, the target. And um, now we move on. It's, it's not you know, the absolute center of uh, Russian foreign policy and intelligence. Policy, but assassination is a part of it. And you know, when the CIA makes a mistake, or Western intelligence uh, and, and British intelligence makes a mistake, people say, "Oh, they bungled." But when the Russians bungle, people say, "Oh, aren't they clever?" Because they've made us think uh, they're bungling. Whereas all the time, you know, spilling all this stuff all over um, London hotels and so on. It's really very, very clever, even though it's not immediately clear just why it would be clever. And the uh, same thing happens. So. This is, I think, the only picture of Stalin with his arm round uh, another senior Soviet individual. And he's out of intelligence, where they really, really liked each other. And again, that's something which biographers of Stalin might pay uh, more uh, attention to. So how did he go about assassinating people? Well, for a number of years, they weren't really happy in operating on foreign territory. So the main targets were lured back to Russia. And uh, this is the so-called uh, SIS MI6 master spy who was lured back to 
uh, Russia by a group claiming uh, to be anti-Soviets who were actually KGB, and shot in 1925. But the importance that has been attached to assassinating major uh, uh, major opponents has really, I think, not been sufficiently taken into account. So I was amazed to get this picture uh, out of, I wasn't the first one to, uh, uh, to do so. Um, when uh, Sidney Riley is shot, uh, his body is placed in the sanatorium uh, of um, uh, the Lubyanka, and they have a drink party. And that's pretty rare in the history of world assassinations. Uh, now, uh, again, just to <laughs> make the point about the fact that um, uh, you know, an essential element, not always the dominant element, but an essential element in uh, Russian foreign aggressive intelligence operations is bombing. Now, the least known fact, and it is a fact about Lenin, is that he was the victim of the first carjacking of any head of state, head of government. The, the evidence, by the way, isn't the slightest dispute. So there he is, and he's waiting for um, the Chekhar security um, man to arrive to go with him uh, in his car when he makes a rare visit to his wife, who is on the outskirts of, uh, of, of, of Moscow. But he fails to turn up, and um, uh, so they head off in the, in the car, and that's Lenin's car, but it's not um, uh, Lenin driving. Uh, so at the outskirts of Moscow, they stop, get stopped by bandits, and Lenin says, papers? And the bandits say, comrade, we're bandits. Bandits don't have to have um, um, documents. Um, your Browning pistol, please. Um, your wallet, please. Oh, yes, in your car. And so they drive off. And it's not for another six months that even the car is recovered and then, of course, the bandits are shot. Um, and then it happens again. All the documents of this are available. I mean, if there was a sacred space uh, in Russia in the early 1920s, it's uh, Lenin's study. But once again, the Cheka, the future KGB, forget about the security rotor to send anyone to um, uh, look after it overnight. So it's completely vandalized, and the, the full 20-page document of the investigation, which uh, follows, has survived, in which um, uh, the investigators are ordered to work out which pieces of furniture were destroyed with axes, and which were destroyed with, um, uh, with, with, with chisels. So uh, we don't, I think, really have to doubt the capacity for really uh, incredible bungling in um, a hostile of operations. And so here are the two bunglers. They are, by the way, this is the most cheerful photograph of two assassins in the world history of assassins. Apart from the fact they're obviously complete idiots, as uh, well as being heroes of Russia, Putin has not become too choosy recently. They've obviously already administered the knowledge of because uh, there is um, could be a bit left, I suppose, in the, in the back. But anyway, they've had a really nice day out in Salisbury. Um, and I mean, if you tried to, I am an exact contemporary of Monty Python. Uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, I used to write scripts like this, uh, and John Cleese, uh, and so on. And never in our wildest dreams would we have written a, a, a script uh, like this. So there we are, uh, explaining that, uh, no, no, we are absolutely fascinated by the Salisbury um, Cathedral Tire and couldn't rest until we saw it. Um, well, I don't know. Uh, that wouldn't we would that would never have made it through the uh, the cut um, when I was involved in satirical productions at uh, at of course these are the two people uh, that uh, after uh, the scribbles and uh, it, yeah, not even 
bothering to conceal uh, the, uh, the speeding uh, tickets. Well, you've already read that. So, um, intermittently running through the history of, of uh, Soviet assassinations abroad, there is really mind-bending incompetence. Uh, but it has been even worse in the past because what has had, it's been some years since the seven. From time to time, the assassins um, used to, very well trained in the old days, used actually to defect. And this man, Nikolai Khokhov, um, at a time when the main targets were Ukrainian MA leaders, instead of assassinating Georgi Okolovich, he gives a, a, um, a press conference with him, at which he produces this may look uh, so faintly dated, um, looks faintly dated because it's 50 years old. But cigarette packets, which could kill from 20 feet, were absolutely the uh, stately art in, in those days. So now on to the first person to grasp the problem, Sherman Kent. I put him down as the founding father of CIA intelligence assessment, but actually he's the first person who really grasped the nature of the problem. And the, the problem is simply this, that those who do not understand past mistakes as a platitude goes, but platitudes are true, otherwise they wouldn't become uh, platitudes. Uh, you know, and not going to progress until we know what the past experience was. Now, he grasped that and he was really the first person to do so. So now I come on to my, my own experience. Uh, when I began many years ago a career in, in Cambridge, I was very fortunate to have living in my part of, of Cambridge. A whole series of people who had been at Bletchley Park, the great code-breaking centre of the Second World War, and probably the most successful British intelligence agency ever. They were still there because they recruited when they were still students. The average age is younger than that of this audience. Uh, so they were uh, uh, around um, then. They were around mm -hmm. to tell me. Two things struck me. Um, first, what they knew. But then I think I may have been just about the first person to realize how staggering what they didn't know was. And what they didn't know was, um, it's now a tourist attraction, by the way, you can, uh, you can go and see it. They had no idea what their predecessors had done. So these people who produced Ultra, uh, the breaking of the um, machine um, cipher, Hitler's uh, most uh, secret cipher, had no idea that the previous time we'd been threatened by invasion, which was by Napoleon. Their predecessors had broken Napoleon's code. And the, there we are, <coughs> in the British National Archives, that's his code, which has been uh, broken. The people who broke Napoleon's cipher had the slightest idea that the last time we were threatened with a really major invasion before that, which was for the sake of the Spanish Armada in 1588, we'd broken their ciphers as well. And for the second ciphers had broken by, well, the chief. Um, of uh, Elizabeth I's uh, intelligence service, it was Thomas Phillips, but it was a dyslexic family and they spelled the name Philippes. And he once complains that it took him a week to break um, out one of the King of Spain's ciphers. So I think we may conclude that the others didn't take uh, quite as long as that. Now, this will improve your summer, winter, autumn, or spring holidays. Um, where the first point at which the lead in intelligence passed to Europe was in Renaissance Venice, which is partly to do with the Renaissance and partly to do with Venice and partly to do with the combination of the two. This is the most beautiful intelligence headquarters in the history of intelligence headquarters. Um, I can't say that the United States, it seems to me, has attached, even though the CIA headquarters are perfectly respectable. But anyone going to Fort Meade, for example. Um, okay. uh, so uh, uh, there we are. Uh, at the top of uh, the building, 
you will find the first um, uh, SIGID agency in European history. And uh, they have, of course, however, no idea that their greatest achievements have been achieved by Muslims over half a millennium before in the Baghdad House of, uh, House of, House of Wisdom. Uh, there we are, not a very good quarter of the man who did it. But of course, as soon as the Ottomans uh, took over Constantinople in 1450, Chobrek, what's all that? They threw it away, it wasn't rediscovered uh, until uh, 1987. So, meanwhile, Sigurd influences policy making under Elizabeth I more than ever before. And to stay within time, I've got time to make one really important point. Well, it's this curious belief that code breaking has been more important in the 20th and 21st centuries than it was in the 16th and 17th century. To form a rapid but scholarly judgment on that, complete nonsense. Um, so, uh, Elizabeth I paid far more attention to code breaking the detail of it than any American uh, president in the, uh, uh, the 19th and uh, 20th centuries. So there she is, her intelligence chief, uh, Wolsey, Wolsey, she's every day, and with whom she has a really wholesome relationship of a kind that's not possible in, in Russia. One of the first requirements for an intelligence chief is somebody who dares to tell truth to power. He dared to tell the truth to power, which is why from time to time, Fortunately, she didn't wear high-heeled shoes. She would take her slipper off, throw it at him, and very frequently uh, score a direct hit. That is an ideal relationship. <laughs> uh, and as one of Margaret Thatcher's uh, uh, basic uh, chief said, my job was to tell the Prime Minister what she did, what I want to know. And uh, we must hope that uh, that tradition continues in the White House at the present time, but uh, mm. I'm not certain. Um, so uh, I think I'll always end at this point. I may be the first historian, I don't want to boast, um, uh, yes I do, um, uh, to uh, uh, see what can be done with royal dresses as uh, a historical uh, source. I mean, they're still one of the few things about Britain that make the front pages um, as of the last two royal weddings of a number of um, uh, American uh, media. So there's uh, Queen Elizabeth I. Every portrait that she did, and this was done on her, had to meet her exact specification. So it's only a year before she dies, but as you can see, she's still 29 and three quarters. <laughs> uh, look at the symbols on her dress. There are just two eyes and ears. What does that mean? Don't even think about it, Travis. My boys, this was not an equal opportunity profession at the time, could see everything you do and hear everything you say. And thus it was, um, in, uh, at the beginning of the 17th century in France, there's Cardinal of Richelieu, the only French cardinal to insist of having three of his faces on a single portrait. And on the right-hand side, his great co-broker, which is French uh, for both nightingale and skeleton pizza, very uh, appropriate. And he was given, they were so proud of him, his own chateau, the Chateau de Julizy. Which you can still go to nowadays, although all the grounds have gone, it's just the, the Hotel de Ville. And when he was there, just to show how important he was, Louis XIII, Louis XIV paid him state visits. Now, let us compare that with the unfortunate experience of Fort Meade. Um, so, the first, the first American president ever to go to uh, Fort Meade, headquarters of uh, 
the, uh, the secret agency is uh, Ronald Reagan in uh, 1986. And at that point, I shall conclude. Thank you very much. Thank you.